What time is it, you wonder? Well, it's time for Drinks with Tony on KPCRLP Santa Cruz 101.9 FM. Bum ba dum bum bum sound. Tony Duchesne here and welcome to episode 140 of Drinks with Tony with my guest Eric M. Johnson discussing his new novel, his debut novel, Whenever a Happy Thing Falls. I've been watching that uh, TV series about late night talk shows and how they started in the 1950s. And it's fascinating to see that it was like Jack Parr, Steve Allen, and Ernie Kovacs. I didn't, it's, there was someone before Johnny Carson. What? It's, it's, it's a trip. But years ago, when I found out that most late night talk show hosts actually have people on their staff to rehearse the questions and answers of the interview segment before the guests go out and sit in the chair, I was utterly disgusted. Utterly. There's no risk there. There's nowhere to just see, hey, what happens when we talk? A publicist recently asked me, could you let us know the questions you're going to ask before booking the author she represents? And I said, I don't even know what I'm going to ask before, uh, (laughs) before the show. The only question I know, the only question I know for sure I'm going to ask is, how are you? And that's, that's how the whole interview starts uh, here. How are you? Oh, there was this one time. A, a publicist want to sit in the room on these interviews sometimes. And I just find that utterly absurd. I let it happen once, though. That's because the publicity firm that also got me a hotel. They, got, they, they had me in the green room uh, during the Jimmy Kimmel show. And I was like, hell yes. <laughs> it was for a magazine. It was awesome. I was a whore for a publicity firm. I was waking up in a posh hotel with a slight hangover. But it was worth being a whore for the night as I just cuddled into my sheets and ordered room service. There's this other time, though, this publicist, she wanted to sit in the room with the guest before we started. And this is about five years ago. And I said, you got to go. <laughs> you have to leave. She said, I, she, what, what, she said, I feel uncomfortable with that. And I said, my show has nothing to do with your comfort or discomfort. And um, she wouldn't leave. So I just started packing up my gear. And that's when she like ran out of the room, called like her boss was on the phone for 20 minutes. I packed up my gear and she came back and she was utterly defeated and said, I could do the interview myself. Yuck. <laughs> I, I never worked with that publicist again. It just it was gross. I just want to talk without it sounding like it's manufactured, without even sounding smart. I, I, I listen to some of these podcasts, uh, book podcasts, and you can tell the host is trying to sound smart and it just hurts my soul. I want authentic conversation. That's what's important to me. I love reading. I love authors, but I really love the little things that get us through the day. How our minds work. What's important to us that sometimes that we don't even realize it's important to us until we talk it out. Why leave all the juicy talk with uh, for our therapist in their office? Let's put it on record. Let's record it and let's not edit it and let's stand by it. Let's figure out our truth for the hour that we're together. And now, Eric M. Johnson, what's your truth? Hi, this is Eric Johnson and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Eric M. Johnson. 
He's the author of his debut novel, Whenever a Happy Thing Falls. Eric, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. debut novel. How does that feel? It feels it feels really great. You know, it's been a it's been a really cool whirlwind of you know events and uh, got a you know a, a, an event next week with Thomas McGuane, who's one of my my favorite authors. And so uh, it's cool. But like as you know, I mean, just just getting it done, going through that process took years. So um, you know, I learned a lot. But it was uh, I'm, I'm happy to be sort of at the top of that mountain, you know, being done with it. <laughs> so. No, when I when my debut novel came out, I assumed there was going to be a parade for me. Everyone was going to toss me flowers, <laughs> and then it just a couple people show up at a bar and go, "Congratulations, dude!" And then everyone turns <laughs> around, and life is just the same as it was. Right, totally. I mean, you never know, like how you know people react to it. But you know, I have to say, you know, your book uh, really resonated with me, and it's it's such a powerful story, and the the, the film too. I mean, it's. It's so, you know, there's so much emotion and so much tragedy as you watch the protagonist go through this journey in life. Um, and there's also an incredible amount of humor in it, which I think is a very, very tough thing to do to pull off the tragedy and the comedy together. And so, yeah, it's a, I just want to say congratulations on that. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I, um, was it powerful to you because you grew up religious or did it just hit you on the just on the emotional journey? You know, I, it, it, I, I didn't grow up particularly religious, it was more of like, you know, it, you know, my book is a, very much about a young man's journey and he's forced to take a job at an investment bank by his father who is obsessed with his material success and has an ulterior motive that, you know, I don't want to give away too much, but let's say he pushes his son into it and his son gives up his dream of being a writer and he's got a budding uh, romance with a precocious young actress. And so he gives up all of that to do this, this high stress finance job. And so he gets thrown into this super stressful environment with you know, racists and misogynists and it's obscene materialism. And so the tension becomes how can he extract himself from this world and not become one of them? And so I, I think in that part, watching your protagonist go through the journey of of self-discovery and fighting against these, I mean, just brutal shackles of religious, I mean, I, I hate to say persecution, but, you know, yeah. uh, you, know you, you, that, that's the word that came to mind. Um, just sort of watching him come into his own that way was, was that, that, I think that for sure is part of it. Yeah, it's interesting because I do believe like in, like sometimes in corporate America and stuff, I, you know, I grew up in the Jehovah's Witnesses. I grew up in, yeah. the, you know, in that. And, and then, sometimes I look at how things are run in corporations and stuff and it feels like a cult. Sometimes it has that same mentality where you, you have, you will be shunned if you don't play along in the exact same little box that you're supposed to play in. Totally. That is such an astute observation. I mean, when you were talking, I was thinking about the cult of Elon Musk, you know, yeah. billionaire rocket maker or the cult of Jeff Bezos, you know, the, the um, you know, the, really the transportation and delivery pioneer. And, you know, it's you, that's part of what was such a struggle for me because like, we're, we're talking now about how we both sort of, you know, escaped or moved past a past life. I mean, I drew experience personally from being an investment banking analyst out of college. And, you know, I didn't, thankfully my life didn't go off the rails uh, as badly as my protagonist, <laughs> but, you know, certainly, you know, drinking and drugs and, and uh, you know, all of that. And so, I, I found that, I mean, 
you know, I lasted a few months before I was, you know, leaving at noon from the bank and going to a bar, looking over the Chicago River and drinking beer and reading Faulkner. And I was like, you know, probably need to change my career trajectory. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, that's uh, it's very it's very interesting that that sort of um, corporations do that. They, they want to yeah. inspire. They want to get a rank and file going in a very similar way. And it, it can be toxic. It can be toxic. It, it is. It's, I really, I'm, I mean, I realized 20 years ago, I'm unemployable when it comes to corporations. I just, I can't do it. I feel the same way. Yeah. I, I don't care about the product. It's, it, it, I was working at Sun Microsystems. It was all about JavaScript, JavaScript, JavaScript. And I'm like, you people, this is not, this is not in my heart. <laughs> this is really right. not there. <laughs> right, right, right. And, and what, what, how did you, what was that journey like for you? Oh, well, I, so it was at, I got in, I go, I was in tech for a little while and I was still coming out of the Jehovah's Witness belief system. So the, the film and the book show like between 17 and 18, for me, it was between um, 22 and 30. <laughs> so, so, but if, but compress, you know, if I showed that stretch of time, it'd be a boring narrative. So I just moved it all to, you know. Interesting. That's an interesting artistic choice. Uh, any any other sort of changes that you intentionally made in, in, in that process? Yes, I didn't have sex with my cousin. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Let's just let's just put that on the record. <laughs> well, it's funny you, you say it because like you know, you publish a book and so many people, well, the first thing they'll say to you is, well. Yo, is this you, right? Did you yeah. do this? Like, did you do these depraved things that this banker is doing? And you have to like, like you, you just have to say no, but it's not really the full, it's like kind of like no-ish. Right. No, <laughs> like, but. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, but, you know, I definitely, I mean, I didn't like the person I was becoming. And so that I will say freely. And I think it's about, look, I didn't set out to write like a, like a, you know, Upton Sinclair jungle you know, take down the banker's book. But what I think the really pernicious thing, apart from the obvious stuff, the, the, the very bad racism and misogyny and materialism, I think part of it was more of like, people were just, just detached from the, the implications of our work or what it, what it meant for a broader society. And the fact that I even cared about that was a bit, would made me an outsider. Like nobody yeah. talked about that. Like, okay, we're merging two companies. We're going to make a boatload of money. All these people are going to lose their jobs. Like that wasn't, that didn't really enter into anyone's consciousness. And so I have a, I have a few scenes in the book where as the protagonist Bale is going through his, this cubicle intense lifestyle and he starts pushing back against these bankers. He starts, he starts increasingly fighting them off and, and challenging these, uh, these very bad things about them. And so there's, you know, there's a couple, there's, there's fights in the office and there's, you know, um, you know, literal fights. And then there's more of like challenging his senior boss, but you know, it's not, I, I always was am drawn to, and again, back to your book, complex characters, like, you know, your protagonist didn't just go, well, I'm running away from home in the first scene. Right. I mean, of course you wouldn't have a, a, a book if you, <laughs> if that happened, but you know, I think that's that sort of complexity of, you know, you want to fit in, you want to make it. You want to live up to your parents' expectations, but you have your own dreams, your own passions. I mean, that kind of, that to me is really fascinating. Well, and I actually fully believed 100%. I didn't, I didn't hmm. think there was anything but the Jehovah's Witness belief system. And that's, that's where, um, yeah, that's the big gotcha. <laughs> so, right, right, <laughs> and right. even when I like, even when I mentally was like, something's wrong here and I right. stepped away, 
I still totally believed. I just thought something wrong would be taken care of at some point. I see. That's fascinating. I mean, for me, like, you know, I, I grew up uh, Jewish and, you know, I remember vividly sitting in synagogue and you listen to the appalling story of, you know, uh, what is it, Abraham and Isaac or whatever, taking his son up the mountain and yeah. holding him to his throat, you know, because he hears voices in his head. And I remember at the time, like, like everyone's just listening to this and I'm like, that's fucked up. Like what, what, what? Like, and I remember my mom saying to me, you know, look, um, you know, this is an, a parable or a metaphor. And I look, I, I'm not, I don't mean to compare like my very, you know, you know, light religious experience with you, but I'm just saying that is one thing that did resonate, you know, where you start, as you get older, you start thinking about like, is this bringing value and joy to me? Is it helping me as a person? For a lot of people it is, you know, I don't want to judge anyone. Um, but for me, I just, maybe I have a darker worldview. I, I, I don't like the idea of an afterlife. I like, you know, I think fly fishing and, and, and hikes and, and the, maj the majestic outdoors is enough for me. And like, like uh, you know, Christopher Hitchens, like, you know, do you want to go to the after party forever that never ends and you can't leave? I mean, you know, so. I want to go to that. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> But what well, is it, your afterlife that you that you want? What's the what's what the I want? Um, I well, I want I I don't need seventy two virgins. I would I would okay. like I would like one de-virginized. Um, it's not, not a, a cousin. Not a cousin. Not a cousin. Okay. <laughs> like someone that might be third the twentieth cousin related. We're we're all related at some point. Um, you know, I I just I keep it open. I don't know because for so many years I knew. I knew exactly what was going to happen. I went door to door and I preached it and I was out there. Um, I was in it and to walk away without the answer is one of the most beautiful things to me. I can go, Oh wait, I don't know. And that's okay. And then it scares me and I'm like, wait, I don't know. <laughs> that, yes, for sure. Yeah. I like that. That that's very powerful. The idea of not knowing and being okay with it. That's yeah. I'm glad. Do you, do you hear the honking? Did I do. Hear? It's good to have a little background noise. <laughs> I, got, I got an irate neighbor. <laughs> He's all, I'm going to honk during the recording of this podcast. <laughs> he it's knows you. It's probably a fan who's just trying to get a sound in there, and then they can tell their friends, no, no, I'm minute 15. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's totally me. You have no idea. So what did you, what was, what's your thinking on, you know, the you know, screenwriting process? Is that like versus novel writing? I mean, what, what, what do you, what was your takeaway from that? A lot of takeaways. Um, it was, I mean, I had to adapt a novel, um, which is already hard in itself. And then I had to adapt my own novel, which I don't ever want to do again in my life. I feel like I learned how to adapt to the screen now. So I feel like I've done the worst part of it and I can do it again and have a little more of a um, perspective on it, but I'd rather do other people's work, not mine. Um, even though at the same time, that story's my baby, that story's me, that story is everything that it's, you know, most of that movie is me and a lot of, and the book too. And, and like a lot of those conversations are verbatim um, from the elders the, the, the parents are just, they are almost right in sync with um, all those situations. I couldn't even put the, I, I had to pull the tragedy back about 80% because it would just be too absurd. Wow. <laughs> so it's like, let's wow. just focus on this one part. So people will be like, oh, wait, that makes sense. Because you put everything in and it'll just be like, 
no, there's no way. So. Right, 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 right. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah. Sounds like a very cool process. Uh, yeah, well, it was brutal. I mean, it's it's all you know. It's you're you're opening the you're opening the wounds, and uh, so it's it's just it's weird to have grat it's weird to have gratitude that I grew up a Jehovah's Witness. So I had opportunity to write about it. So I had opportunity to get a film made about my life. Who gets that? It's right. you know, it, it's I, in the end, I'm like, was it good or was it bad? I don't know. I don't have right. the answer. Right. Yeah. I mean, I I identify with that too. It's like without this experience, I wouldn't have had, I wouldn't have a book. So uh, you know, that's that is interesting. Were any were any of the fight scenes in the book and the was any of that kind of fantasy where you're like, I wish I could, I wish I did it this way. Uh, I did actually have a little scuffle with with one of my yeah, with one of my bosses, uh, and so I, I definitely in the book played it up a bit more. Like you know, at the end of it, they're like you know, on the floor, the shirts ripped, sweating. Yeah. But, you know, but you know, it is it is a very strange and uh, culture. And again, like look, I I still talk to some people from that life, and you know, I don't wish anybody ill will, and and you know, but I I, I definitely um, you know, I think that for, for I think for young people. Like I never grew growing up had had my parents say to me like oh, you can be a writer like that you can make it doing that you can have you can be a journalist and you know that's a career I mean they they never like the parents in the book the dad of course specifically you know he doesn't want his son to do any of this artsy stuff but my parents weren't like that so I but I never so I kind of it was interesting to me how I feel like in the United States young people aren't aren't encouraged really to go into these nebulous fields it's always like you know. And I get why, right? You know, doctor, lawyer, these types of things, they're prescribed. You know, you go to this school, then you go to get your degree, then you become a lawyer, right? And so, you know, I'm just, um, I, I extracted myself from finance. And, you know, at the time, it was a like everyone I knew was like, you're making a disastrous decision, right? Because I'm making all this money. But I did like a, I, I literally threw my phone from the, the, the bank issued phone in the Chicago River, went up to the, the head of investment banking and was like, I'm done. Thank you for everything. And then took a job as a cub reporter, you know, making, I don't want to tell you how much I was making. Was yeah, so yeah. And then, and then, you know, but now I work for Reuters, you know, and I get to cover aerospace and I finally got my book done. So I just think it's, it's like you, like you were saying, you go on a painful journey, but if you stick to it, it can work. Maybe it doesn't sometimes, but it can. Well, it's interesting what we do with it. You know, I, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I've known people that had to get out and they, and they killed themselves after leaving the Jehovah's Witnesses. And then there's ones who went drug OD, you know, and, um, and then there's ones who had to go back in. And there, there's ones who are preaching about the ex-Jehovah's Witnesses more than they were preaching about Jehovah. So there's, there's a lot of extremes that can happen. And I feel like when we embrace the creative part and, go, and that's where the beauty comes because that's where we can go, oh, wait. We're just human. Let's let's just massage this human condition type thing. You know? Right, right. What are your thoughts? Like, why why do you think there's been so much ink spilled on you know the Catholic abuse scandal and stuff, and less so on on Jehovah's Witnesses? Or I mean, maybe that's just my the, what I've seen as a you know national journalist. Whatever. Well, no, you're right. Um, and the, I think because Catholicism is sexy, because <laughs> Jehovah's Witnesses see, yeah. are just bland and nothing. You you, you go to the Kingdom Hall where we congregate and mm -hmm. it's just as bland as possible because it's about it's about Jehovah. It's not about these ostentatious idols that the Catholic Church and I'm like those idols are kind of cool, man. I'd like to look right. at that when I was in a 
<laughs> right. So you're not doing the body, the bread into the body of Christ and the wine and the, and there's you no know, drinking. So it's a much more. Well, no, we drink. No, they drink. Oh, oh, okay. It's one of the vices that the Jehovah's Witnesses really, really go for. Like, oh. because you can drink and it's your only vice. And it's a great way to numb yourself after so much, you know, you got a lot of propaganda coming at you. And then right. everyone I know is just like, oh, yeah, I drink, but I don't get drunk. And, and they would come to my house and pass out in the bathroom for, a, you know, the night and wow. just be like, I think I ate something bad. That, that was always the excuse. Oh, I think I ate something bad. <laughs> like, but that was in the movie, the protagonist's excuse saying, oh, she ate something oh, bad. Right, 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 right. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. And it's used a lot. And it's so um, it's so funny because it's like, oh, yeah, it wasn't the 14 shots of vodka. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> it was the peanut butter cup that got you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good times. Well, thanks. That was great. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I was gathering my thoughts and then I didn't have anything to say immediately. <laughs> I, I love silence. You know, I love like the, the, the gathering of the thoughts. Yeah. yeah I mean, one thing I wanted to ask you about was just advice. I mean, so, so I finished this novel and you know, there's a couple, uh, you know, knock on wood, there's a couple production companies looking at it. You know, you never know, you never know, but like, you know, is that like, what do you, what do you think about Hollywood and, and writing for Hollywood and that, that sort of thing? Would you encourage, you know, generally people to, to do that or do you you know do you think fiction writing is a better place to stay oh no i do both um and i mean i teach screenwriting now. No, i know i know yeah, that's yeah. what i mean is for me i mean would you encourage me oh it's um you know it's about here's what i keep learning is what what gets your creative juices going mm -hmm. and um for me for me it's about the, for me it's about the novel beginning to end, if they put a gun to my head and say, choose one thing, I'm like, fine, novel, I'm out, you know, but, but there's something cool about, I, I love films. I'm such yes. a fan of films too. And I, I like to be a part of it, even if it's just kind of to be in the vicinity of it. So, um, you know, I actually, my first option was with a, a producer and we were working on the TV series before it got to uh, Eric. And, um, that was that was great. It didn't go anywhere. Nothing happened. It went into development nothingness, right. and then calls just weren't answered, <laughs> which is. But it's all beautiful because I got to work with them on getting a pitch together, putting the pilot script together, putting a series bible together, all that stuff, and making all the mistakes. And then by the time Eric was interested, and he's like, "Well, let's see a screenplay and see if we can pull something out of this," and then um, and then I, I was just like, "Oh my god." I kind of know how to, I, I know how to do it now. It's, it, um, I see. it was good yeah. practice. So I just, I get a kick out of it. Um, but I don't buy it. The thing for me is I don't buy in to giving too much of a crap about everything. Um, because in the end, it's, I'm all about, we got our story and we're good. We got our, we got our novels out. And the novel is the one where we have our name on it and we own all the flaws and all the greatness of it. We, we own all of it. And, so the movie is almost kind of like an extracurricular activity and it's a lot of fun, but I, we can always go back to the, go back to the page. They can never take a pencil and a piece of paper away from me. They could take, right. they could take a whole production that employs hundreds of people away from you, but they, they can't take the paper and pen away from you. Uh, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And actually what you said about, 
uh, verbatim, a lot of going back to the conversations with the elders verbatim. It's interesting because I, 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 I almost like a lot of it was journalistic for me. Like I started writing down the horrifying and funny or whatever things my colleagues were saying. And I kept, I kept a journal. And so like a lot of stuff in the book is verbatim, like things that people said, because you're trying to build a believable world ultimately. So you can't, like I you definitely, of course you make stuff up and it had the characters all work on each other and the, and the language changes and the scenes change or whatever. But I, yeah, I mean, I remember like literally sitting in the, you know, my cubicle at the bank one day and I got a call from a college friend who said a, a, a teammate we played soccer with in college had, had died. A freak, one of these freak, awful accidents. And um, after I hung up, my like, you know, cubicle mate um, said, what happened? And I told him and he just burst out laughing. And he's like, you know, what an idiot. Yeah. Like it was, it was, it was a terrible, it was a skateboarding accident. So he was just in a parking garage, fell, hit his head and that was it. And so, so literally I got up from my desk, took a yellow legal pad, went down to this bar and wrote, what would become one of the first scenes of the book where a senior banker comes in and finds the protagonist laying on the floor in his cubicle sleeping because he's been there for like three days in the office. And um, that was kind of the moment where I was like, you know, I think I have something like, and so it took, it took that sort of like verbatim, you know, you know, scene that, that, that incident to kind of start me going. And then of course I had all these quotes to pull from and then, then of course you end up with like a sprawling 300 page manuscript that's unreadable. And then you work through the years of getting it into an actual narrative. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so. How, how, how much, uh, how many years did it get from, uh, how many years did it get from a guy laughing at your friend dying in a tragic way? And now you have to be grateful to that idiot because if he didn't yes. laugh, then it might not be here. How, what yeah. was, when was that to when you were, got to a final copy? It was, it was a decade. It was a decade. So I, so wow. what I did is I, I wrote, so what we did is I quit my job. I George Costanza quit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, remember I was taking a sip of water. Don't do that. Yeah, right, 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 bad timing. So remember he goes in the office and yeah. just like blows, like blows a gasket. Yeah. So I do that. Then I go and work as a reporter for a year. And then actually we moved to Croatia. Uh, my wife, now my wife at the time, my girlfriend. And so we go to Croatia and I'm living the most idyllic writer's life you could ever imagine. I'm like writing during the day in the cafes, you know, it's, and then, uh, and wrote the first draft over a year in Croatia, spending all the money I made in banking. So I came back to the States, broke with this sprawling, uh, you know, thick doorstopper manuscript. Uh, and then, and then it was really, you know, it, it, and then it went to, you know, I got an agent, this big name agent in New York. We're working through it. We're getting it in shape. I feel like we're making progress. And then he decides I'm out of the industry. I just, I'm going to be a lawyer. Sorry. And, you know, the firm was like, look, we, we, we think it's great, but we don't have any, we're not taking out any more clients. So I, I got disillusioned, you know, I shelved it for a couple years and then, you know, went to work at Reuters and I was covering, you know, Obama's reelection campaign in Chicago then I went out to Seattle and then I'm doing breaking national news. And I kind of, you know, my writing changed because Reuters, of course, wire service. So your shorter sentences, you're, you know, you're really focused on the overall narrative. And then, um, you know, I came back to it and I don't know, maybe it was the coronavirus. It was before, maybe, maybe it was covering the 737 MAX crisis from Boeing 
just 18 hours a day. And I said, I need something else. I gotta, I need an outlet. I need something new. So I came back to it, you know? And uh, so, yeah, I guess it was about two, two years ago where I kind of went back to it, you know, threw myself into it, started looking again, going through that process again, trying to find an agent, trying to find a publisher. And, uh, you know, I don't want to, I'm rambling on here, but basically, you know, I found a you know, great boutique publisher and, and a book editor that was just like, I can't say enough finding a genius book editor who gets it and who kind of knows what, what it should be and really yes. pushes you and just puts you through the paces. And that, that was a game changer for me. Her name's Mary Wisniewski and she, she wrote a book on Nelson Algren. Um, another Chicago, you know, so I'm, I grew up in Chicago. So she very much sees this as a Chicago book. Yeah. There's the architecture. There's the feeling of the main character being an outsider. Um, there's the people on the make, the people on the take. And so she, that's kind of why she latched onto it in a way, in that way. And that was a game changer for me. So fast forward, you know, I got it ready and, and, uh, and that was it. So, so it's kind of a long winded story, but, uh, but the point is, it's a, it's a long process. It's torture. Now there are writers out there who write their first draft and it's, you know, gangbusters, you know, right off the bat. But I, that wasn't my experience. I can tell you that. <laughs> I think, I think, I think your experience is a lot more common than the other one. And the other, and why we don't hear about that is people, the, the, um, a good article in Buzzfeed is going to be like, you know, uh, it, they, they don't want the narrative where like it takes 10 years to write a book they want they want more like anybody can do this and you can too you know it's just like right, right, right. oh yeah it was my first it was my first thing i got it out within you know and you're just going yeah no <laughs> yeah come on uh for sure. So, so, so croatia so did you did you just say did you say to yourself hey it's cheap to live in croatia and i'm a writer I mean, it was pretty much that simple. I mean, my wife and I were talking and I was like, look, I got to write this novel. I got, I love fiction. I, it means a lot to me. And so she's like, you know, where should we go? And we kind of talked about it. And literally my next door, my two, two doors down growing up, they happened to be Croatian. And so I was like, yeah, I heard that place is really beautiful. And it is, it's like, it's like a less pretentious Italy. I mean, of course it's changing with, you know, American Western culture coming in and, you know, it's probably changed a lot since we live there, but I mean, it was great. I lived in Zagreb, uh, the capital, and uh, cafe culture, super, you know, super slow-paced. Oh. People are very literary. They, they love to talk about fiction. They're, they love art. Um, you know, I, I don't want to romanticize it too much. Every country has problems. It's a, it's a you know, virtually 100% Catholic country. There's little diversity. They're coming off of a very painful war. Um, and so... It was a, it was a, but it was a fascinating culture. And then of course, you know, you spend August on the beach in a ramshackle apartment and you're, you know, you're writing and reading. I mean, it was ridiculous. I mean, it was a, and then, but I have the full extreme because now I have, I went through that process of getting published and at the, the tail end of me trying to get this book ready, I've got two young kids, a four-year-old and an 18 month old. I've got a full-time job at Reuters news covering one of the most competitive corporate stories you know, ever with Boeing crashes and coronavirus pandemic downturn and travel. And I'm navigating that. And of course, I love to fish and try to go in the outdoors. So I'm like trying to squeeze that in and, um, you know, getting chastised by my Chicago book editor. So it was like a full spectrum, like the full, <laughs> the <Yeah>. full experience <laughs> that you can have. Well, it's, it, it sounds like a great film. You know, when you pack that much in, a journalist trying to fly fish with two New York kids and, a, you know, a Chicago editor. It's um, 
it, it feels like something where you're just like, oh my God, this is this character. We need to follow this guy. Where is this going? You know? Oh man, that would be cool. Maybe my next book will be a, you know, a, a good soldier Schfeck, uh type of journalist who's like trying to navigate all this stuff. I don't know. But yeah. yeah. The, how about you as far as your writing? Like what's your writing process like? How do you, you know, when do you write? How do you, how do you organize that? Well, <laughs> I, <laughs> I have it right. I have right here. Uh, I'll give you a visual. So this is this is a screenplay that I've been uh, rewriting. <laughs> wow! Wow! That's awesome. Um, For everyone out there, he's just pulled a massive stack of, of yellow pages out that are some of them are folded, others are askew, but it, you can genius is in there. You can feel it. <laughs> um, so essentially, if you if you see that, you'll see it's a lot of neuroticism. Um, might 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 be a bipolar disorder in there. That's the foundation of American literature, neuroticism <laughs> and bipolar mania. Yeah, I, so that's kind of I do it in a weird way, and then I and then I get to the technical part of it, and that's that's the part for me where I get excited about it because then it's like printed oh, out, and then I'm redlining. I I'm the guy that never brings this uh, computer a cafe; it has to be paper only. So I'm either oh, long-handed or I've printed everything out, I've typed in, and I'm editing. I don't know why that is. I think I'm just an old grumpy man who doesn't think <laughs> computers should be at cafes, you know? So do you think that's changed your writing? Like literally the interface with technology? Um, I don't know. Cause the technology is pretty cool too. You know, it's, it's amazing to write a screenplay in final draft than writing in Microsoft word, which it's, you know, it's just like, it's monumentally amazing. Um, mm -hmm. But for me, I have to handwrite everything, even screenplays. So, and that's just how I do it. And it doesn't mean that um, I feel like it's the right way to do it. It's probably the wrong way to do it, but it's the right way to do it for me, you know? Mm. So. It's always been that way for you. Uh, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. When I was working in tech, I would go to the bathroom when I was making like 75 bucks an hour in the late nineties, right? I would go to the bathroom and I would write poetry for uh, about 15 minutes. And I would, I would, um, I would track the time that I spent in the bathroom writing poetry. So at the end of the day, I knew how much I was paid as a writer and then how much I was paid as <laughs> on the job. So I was like, I'm a working writer, but you know, on the toilet right. stall. <laughs> I love that. That's such a good image of a writer. Like, yeah, you just, you literally squeeze it in whenever you can. I mean, yeah. That's you squeeze it in when you squeeze one out. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you, and the other thing, you just can't control when you get an idea, when something you know rushes into your head. It could be literally when you're laying in bed and you're like, okay, I've got to write this down because I'm never going to remember this. Uh, yeah, so I do that. But you know, journalism feels more structured. It's like you you have a deadline. You've got pressure from somebody telling you, hey, I need this story. I need this story. You know, you have the competitive the competitive nature of daily journalism where you're like, okay, what's the New York times working on? What's the journal working on? You know, that kind of stuff. But with writing, like, who are you competing against? You know, like it's, it's a very different thing, right? There's no, you're, what are you, you're trying, you're trying to make the best art you can and only you have your gut to know what's good. So. Well, I feel like I'm competing with death. I got, I got to get some stuff down. <laughs> <laughs> before i die <laughs> okay well that is the ultimate editor <laughs> tick tock tick tock <laughs> right, right. um when uh how do you feel about 
I mean, you, you seem like you're in a great journalism position. And I'm like, I used to, I used to write for the San Francisco Chronicle. I gave him six articles a month, but I was just freelance, oh, great, great, yeah. but I just yeah. loved the deadline. I loved the interviews. I, I really liked that. I wasn't in the newsroom. I just sent my articles in and got paid, but, yeah. um, but I just love, I love the old journalism of the newsroom of just, you know, I love journalism movies. I'll watch a journalism movie, even if it's, awful it's like oh it oh, takes place at a newspaper i'm there <laughs> no i totally agree with you like i'm thinking you know well my favorite movie of all time is probably his girl friday which is an adaption of ben heck's front page and it's the front page era of chicago journalism you know it's the ambulance chasing it's the paying for paying off sources it's like everything you're taught not to do but it's so good. I mean, it's so funny. I mean, the irreverent journalist playing poker in the newsroom and, you know, things have changed a lot. I mean, Reuters is a very staid corporate culture. I mean, you know, the newsroom's kind of quiet, but um, I love, I, I, I mean, it's a ton of fun. I mean, you get to talk to very interesting people and um, I do, I am competitive. I like to, you know, I like to break news, but, you know, it's kind of like, I mean, I didn't want to like get to, uh, in, it was, <laughs> psychological on, on <laughs> in a public way but it's hard for me because I love fiction too and so I don't have the time right now to write fiction that much so I have this kind of push-pull and I and I also by the way love your imposter syndrome from a previous show I think that's like such a good it's just nail on the head image of what we all go through as, as, as creative writers. So I don't know what to do. I don't know, like, do you, you know, maybe I just need to have a longer time frame and say, well, I'll get my next novel done. I'll, I'll get it short stories. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know what your, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, I'm, I know I'm uh, kind of throwing a lot out there, but. Yeah. Um, I had a thought a second ago and then it went away. And, and, and I said, um, and I said uh, to someone, I was like, Oh, I blame COVID. And she's like, no, you're just getting old. And I was like, Oh, thanks. <laughs> um no, we were talking about the newsroom vibe. We were talking about uh, fiction well, yeah, I mean, versus uh, versus writing. Oh, and imposter syndrome. So at the yes. Chronicle, I mean, I would I had written probably about eight hundred or so articles for the Chronicle, and even up to like article number seven hundred, I was sending it to my editor, going, "This is the time they're going to realize I suck at this and tell me to never write again." I know this is getting killed. That's I. Why do we do that to ourselves? I don't know. I don't know. It's a it's a universal sickness. I have the same thing. I literally just filed a story today, and I'm just like, I don't know. I just don't know. And I've I mean, I've written hundreds of stories. I mean, every one you have this self conscious thing. Is it, you know, is it? Did I write it the best way I could? Did I tell it the right way? Did it? Is, is you know everything? I mean, it's we just second guess ourselves. And you know, I'm trying to think about. I wanted to ask you about revision, and it's like we get obsessed with revision. And at what point do you just have to say, stop? Like it's, and it, it might just be like, if you, the danger is that if you think, well, I, my gut tells me there's nothing wrong with this. It's good. Is that enough? I don't know. I, I don't know. I wrestle with that all the time. I'll tell you in my novel, I, I'll, I, you know, how many times have you read your own novel before it's published? I'll tell you, I mean, there's things I read again. I'm like, you know, I, I could have handled that differently. I could have, I should have, why, did oh. I, why, why didn't I cut this dialogue down? It's too long, you know, and you, but, but there's, but I find that like, for example, the last 30 pages, I'm just really proud of. I think I nailed it. And I was like, I pulled it together. The structure was very, is a, is a little unusual in my book. I kind of pivot between the banking scenes where he's struggling with, 
basically alcoholism and drug dependency and fighting off these these um, uh, other bankers. You pivot to London, where you see him, re, you know, studying fiction and theater and having this beautiful romance with with you know the girl of his dreams. And then you're pivoting to this cabin in rural Michigan, where after this really explosive scene at the bank. I don't mean explosive like he set up a bomb <laughs> in the bank, but but he did something really career ending in the middle of the office um, with a colleague. And then uh, he flees to this to this cabin to sort of reassess life and figure his stuff out. And so you're, you're following him on this journey, but at the end, you, pull, you have to pull it all together. And I just feel like, you know, I don't want to give away too much, but it's a green ending. It's a hopeful ending. You feel like, okay, he He's got a plan. And so, um, yeah, I was just, I was really proud of that. But the, the revision of that, you have to trust your instincts because you're like, you know, some, if you read it chronologically, you're meeting him in London before he's at the bank, when he's in college and he's living sort of the, you know, wonderful college life. Um, and then, but I just thought it's more exciting to start at his nadir where he's at the, literally the end of his rope. And he's like, I don't know what to do. And so, um, yeah, I guess there's this trust you have to trust your gut on stuff and just hope it works, you know? And at the same, I mean, when, when I adapted Jesus jerk, um, that was the last time I read my novel and I did not want to read it. Um, I got, I'm like, I got to read this. It was brutal to read because one, well, you know, I was like, Oh, really? I did that. Uh, and then sometimes I was like, Oh my God, that's funny. I forgot I did that. But, uh, but it's hard. I used to think that I used to think writers sat in their rooms and had all their books out and were like, let me read my novel again. <laughs> just like, no, I don't even want to look at it. It's just, um, it, it's like almost having sex with the wrong person. And then all you want to do is just be as far away from them as possible. It's like, I can't even look you in the eye. Can we just go? <laughs> right, right, right. Maybe that's the test of is, 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 are you done revising is you can read something endlessly. And not be, and be okay with it. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I don't either. I, I we, just, we all stumble through this. Well, you teach this stuff. I mean, come on. What is it? Oh, but I, I, but my my teaching style is like, okay, here's everything I've done wrong, and I'm still doing wrong. Don't do this. And then oh. I'll just they can just knock it all off. <laughs> well, no, and I think look, you're uh, you're a teacher, and I think that like, it's it's so important because I I I did not grow up writing all the time. I'm, you know, I'm not here to tell you like the Truman Capote. I was writing short stories when I was four. I was, I didn't seriously get into writing and reading and caring deeply about literature until high school. And I had a teacher who I uh, was junior year of high school and he was, he was a deeply flawed individual. I mean, he clearly had some alcohol issues and other issues and he was, he was sort of acerbic and, and, and tough. But he pulled me aside. He was like, listen, you're wasting my time. You're wasting your own time. And I think you have a voice. I think you can, I think you will like this, but you need to get your head out of your ass. And um, at the time it was, you know, British literature, right? So it was, mm -hmm. you're reading James Joyce, Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. And that book and that teacher changed my life. I read that and he, I became his, I became friends with him. We, we, we had, a, uh, I think, a mutual uh, friendship where he, I was helping him grade papers and I was writing poetry and giving it to him. And he was, you know, it's coming back covered in red, masturbatory, you know, banal, you know, and, and he pulled me out of this sort of like malaise where I didn't 
care. I didn't care about you know academics. I certainly didn't care about poetry. And from that, like it changed my life. It literally changed my life. And so, um, you know, I, I, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be talking to you if I didn't have that experience. And so as a teacher, I feel like what you're doing is just so huge. I mean, maybe you don't get, maybe you can't get through to everybody, but you are definitely getting through to some people who are going to go on to do great things. If not for the, if not for the, you know, the general body of, of, of art in, in the world, just for themselves which is enough. Wow, thank you. I've been burnt Sorry, out. I went on a quarter. <laughs> <went on Twitter. laughs> no, that was great. I'm like, I'm like, I hope so. That, that's a good idea. Yeah. Um, well, what's funny is I, I didn't really discover reading until I was in my 20s. Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't, because um, I couldn't really read worldly type things that's right that's so right. Wow. yeah so i ended up in you know in the in the book and the film it was the guys in high school when he goes to the library i ended up at the library when i was 22 and my friend killed himself and i went to the elders and i was like i'm having a really hard time and they were like oh he's disfellowshipped you're not supposed to grieve him it was it was just like that cut and dry oh my and oh my i was like i'm having suicidal thoughts too so i went to the oh library and i picked up a tony robbins book and that's like that was my entry to become a writer is wow Tony freaking robbins but it's not because of him it's because he was kind of located near the poetry section and then that's when i started reading things that were like oh my god this isn't boring bible literature this actually speaks to me and um and it's just i love it you know i think most of most of us as writers have that moment and you had that moment with your with your tea you have the moment where it's just like Oh, this is everything. Right. What, what other books did you do you remember that you discovered, you know, early on? The first novel I read that I, that I completely read on my own, and I have no idea why I picked it out, was Giovanni's Room by uh, James Baldwin. Yeah. And I read that, and, I, and it just, I was just like, I don't even remember what it's about, but I remember that I was just, it hit my heart. And I, and I think the reason that it hit my heart and I'm, well, I'm finding out more and more is because when there's an authenticity and a truth from the author to the story, like we can feel mm-hmm. it. And so it was him. And then after that, I found Henry Miller. Oh know? yeah. And then so you really went for it. You went from the Bible to yeah. just depraved uh, sexual mania. That's a great yeah. transition. No, and, then <laughs> I, and then I found out about this thing called the beat generation and then I was just like, and then I heard about On the Road, Jack Kerouac. I called the library. I was like, do you have a copy of On the Road? And they're like, it's at our other branch. And I'm like, can you hold it for me? And, the, and I, you know, I'm sure they were rolling their eyes to the back of the head going, we got another one. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I remember skateboarding that day. And I even saw one of the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses for my congregation. And she's like, and she, she drove up. She's like, where are you going? I'm like, I'm going to the library. <laughs> I'll talk to you later. I was just like <laughs> trying to get there before they closed so I can get on the road. And then. Then I was just, and I read on the road and I was like, I think I need to travel. Because as a Jehovah's Witness, you don't really travel. You go do missionary work in, in other countries. Everything has to be around the Jehovah's Witness thing. So, yeah, those were the little lights. Up, those were the little beautiful flickering of light. And then all of a sudden, you know, all of a sudden it goes, boom, 20 years later, you got a book out. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> all of a sudden. <laughs> Yeah, it is great all that, you know, being self-deprecating about, you know, the, the, the publishing industry and the writing process, because it's, yeah, it's, it's tough. But, you know, it's, 
Has there like when you were talking, I remember thinking, so I had this this teacher, but the sad part of the story is like just at when I started writing my own fiction, he actually passed away senior year. So I had this like such a powerful mentor who who left suddenly and I could never pick up Joyce again. So I, I got with him, wow. I read Dubliners, the short story collection, one of the best story collections ever written. And then, you know, but but he gave me the his copy of Ulysses. And I, I must've read the first sentence, you know, a bunch of times and I just can't read it. So I don't know, it kind of, like, it's interesting that when you were talking, the relationship we have with these books, because we love reading, and but we're reading them not just for the entertainment and the story and, and the art of it or whatever, but we have our own personal relationship with them in a very weird way. So that's kind of when you were talking, that kind of jumped into my head that, like, books have meaning for us beyond just this, like, story. I mean, sometimes they don't. Sometimes it's just right, entertainment right. or whatever. But the really great ones, the ones that stick to us, you know, you have your your own ones that you've gone through that sort of changed your life. So. And it's great, you know, it's it's that's that's why I love doing, you know, this podcast. It's just like, you know, people are like, oh, how much money you got to do so pretty good. I'm like, no, I pay to do this. <laughs> I, pay, <laughs> right. I pay for server space. But what a joy it is to be a fan of writers and just to be able to sit there and talk to a writer, you know, that we have, me and you haven't met, but we get to meet right. and hang out now. This is great. It's How great. lucky it's, am I? No, it's so great. And I really, I really appreciate you know, being here. It's really fun. And that's great. It was great, great to meet you in, in Zoom digitally. <laughs> that's a great way to end the show. Yeah. Well, all right then. <laughs> Eric M. Johnson on Drinks with Tony. Check out his debut novel, Whenever a Happy Thing Falls. Next week on the show, we have Mary Dixie Carter. She'll be discussing her debut novel, The Photographer. Hey, thanks for listening, and let's all lose this extra COVID weight together. I'll see you on the hiking trails. I want to fit Purdy in my pants again. Have a great weekend. I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Drinks with Tony. You are on your radio dial at 101.9 FM, KPCRLP. Santa Cruz.